first reading is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put a hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I would pray that by your Spirit, I would be faithful to your word, edifying to your people, and glorifying to your Son, Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. It is to your advantage that I go away. These are some of the last words of Jesus 
it is to your advantage that I go away. That is to say, the follower of Jesus now is the potential for a deeper, richer, more vibrant, fruitful life of faith than those disciples did in that moment. Do we trust that? Believe that? Experience that? I would hazard a guess that we, in fact, don't. Which of us has not wondered, oh, if, if I had just been there to see the miracles, the dead raised, the lame walk, the blind see, if I could just have heard him teach, if I could just have interacted with him face to face, known his touch, oh, the impact that would have had on my life of faith. And yet Jesus says to those who are experiencing that as reality, It is to your advantage that I go away. Really? How? Let's take a look. If you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 16 as we pick up at verse 4. Now chapters of John from 14 through 16 are all of Jesus' final words to his disciples. He's commissioning them to live into the call of discipleship. And he began by pointing them to the end goal. I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's not speaking here, as we've been saying, of a heavenly future, of a spiritual ethereal existence, but rather he is using ancient Jewish marital imagery to point to a future marriage, the marriage of heaven and earth, where God's will is done on earth as in heaven, where our world will be shot through with the glory, beauty, love, and justice of the living God. And in light of that glorious future, Jesus invites his disciples, both them and us, to live in anticipation of that future in all that we do and say and pray. But the disciples have been full of questions. How will we do this without you here? Without you making known the Father? Without you manifesting your power? Without you showing the way? It is to your advantage that I go away. He's shifting their focus. They're focused on his departure, sorrowing and his leaving. They're focused on his impending absence, He shifts their focus. Verse 5. None of you asks where I'm going. For if you would just focus on where I'm going, your sorrow would give way to joy. Your anxiety give way to courage. Your uncertainty give way to clarity. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because if I go away, verse 7, I will send the helper, the paraclete, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to you. Over this series, we've been exploring the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and we must once more fill out our understanding, open our hearts to receiving. For the Spirit is the one who enables, who empowers, who inhabits us, so that we might live in anticipation of the marriage of heaven and earth in all we do and say. And pray. For, verse 8, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. 
Now, very often when we hear that word world, we think of it setting up a dichotomy. There's the church, there's the world. There's the us and them. There's the sacred and the secular. There's the spiritual and the material. And I've heard this text preached with that kind of dichotomy in mind as a passage about evangelism. As you, the disciple of Jesus, tell others the good news of Jesus, know that the Spirit is with you to convict of sin, of God's righteousness, of impending judgment. And indeed, one will not be convinced of those realities without the work of the Spirit. But I don't believe that is the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. You see the word world, it's the word cosmos. And cosmos is defined as human society ordered without reference to God. World, cosmos, human society ordered without reference to God. Now let me ask you, can we look out at our world and see aspects of our society that are not ordered in reference to God? His kingship, his love, his justice, his grace. We'd only need to turn on the news for a couple of minutes to see that it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Are there areas of your own life that are not ordered in reference to God? I would say if you're anything like me, you'd have to answer yes. There are certainly areas of my life that I've walled off from any reference to God. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Are there aspects of our church, both locally and globally, that we've ordered without reference to God? Grievously, yes. And Orvin so ably and capably pointed to that reality last week. There's no dichotomy here. There's no church, world, us, them. The Spirit's work is to convict all of us to reveal, to expose any aspect of life that is not ordered in reference to God. Why? So that we would no longer be cosmos. We would no longer be ordered without reference to God. And how does the Spirit do that? He will convict. It's a very specific word, a word that comes out of the ancient courtroom. It's about the cross-examination of a witness until they see and admit their errors or are brought to acknowledge the force of another perspective. This word is all about asking a lot of hard questions to show the holes in the stories, to undo the fabric of a person's perspective on things. The Spirit will convict. Convict, verse 8, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. First, sin. Now, why would the Spirit need to reveal to us where we're ordered without reference to God? Well, because we need to see the heart of our problem before we'll ever receive a solution. It's just the way things work, right? Try to get someone to go to a doctor who doesn't think they need to. What do you need to do? You need to argue with them, right? You need to cross-examine them. You need to say, well, here are the symptoms, and here's what WebMD says about them, and here's what's going to happen if you leave it. You're convicting them of sickness, the necessity for help. If you offer help to someone and they don't think they need it, well, then that's an insult. 
But if they know they need help and they're desperate for it, well, then you're a savior. The Spirit will convict the world of sin. Why? Because, verse 9, they don't believe in me. Jesus is saying that at the heart of sin is an absence of faith, of trust, of right reference to Jesus. In seminary, I had a friend who was doing his MDiv dissertation on the difference between John Calvin and Martin Luther's definition of sin from the first chapters of Genesis. Now, what at first blush appears like an incredibly yawn subject had a profound impact on my life of faith. Calvin, from the first chapters of Genesis, saw sin as disobeying divine laws. God says, don't eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. That's sin, breaking divine laws. Luther, on the other hand, saw sin as an absence of faith, of unbelief. Satan comes to Eve and, and says, did God really say not to eat of that tree? Well, he knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to become like God. He's not good. He's holding out on you. He's keeping something good from you. Luther said, that's sin. It's the absence of trust. It's unbelief. I say this had a huge impact on my life of faith because I began to see that when the Spirit was convicting me of acts of sin in my life, that underneath every one of those sins, It was a lack of trust. And so I began when the Spirit brought me to repentance to ask the question, what aspect of who Jesus is and what he's done for me am I not trusting in that leads me to live in this way? As an example, why do I lie? There are many reasons why we lie, but perhaps for me I lie because I want you to think well of me. But if I truly trusted that in Jesus I am loved, accepted, forgiven, chosen, that you think well of me, well, nice, is immaterial. And I can admit where I'm wrong, where I'm broken, more openly acknowledge what I've done wrong and seek forgiveness for the sake of restored relationship. Underneath every sin is a lack of trust, unbelief. Spirit will convict us of sin because we've not believed, trusted in Jesus. The Spirit will also, verse 10, convict the world of righteousness. Now, if the world, cosmos, is defined as human society, not ordered in reference to God, then a big part of righteousness is human society rightly ordered in reference to God, his goodness, his justice, his love, his grace. Now, why would the Spirit need to convince us of righteousness? Because our sense of rightness in human society is culturally conditioned and constantly shifting. And we know that, right? We've seen that play out over these past years. A previous generation's sense of righteousness, of justice, of human society rightly ordered led them to immortalize their leaders by erecting statues and naming buildings, saying, here 
are the people who represent the best of us. Let's hold up their example and memory to shape us for years to come. But our current sense of rightness, of justice, of human society rightly ordered has changed. Such that we're now looking back on those statues and those name buildings and saying for the sake of justice, we can no longer hold those leaders up. We can no longer honor them in such a way. In this generation, we will perhaps erect our own statues and name our own buildings to honor the people that represent the best of us. But there will come a time Perhaps in the not-so-distant future where another generation will look back and say, they were wrong about what makes for rightly ordered society. In fact, what they believed was destructive, reprehensible. And the statues will come down and the names will be erased. Our sense of rightness, justice, human society rightly ordered is culturally conditioned and constantly shifting. And so the Spirit must convict us of righteousness, what human society looks rightly ordered in reference to its creator. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 10, the Spirit will convict of righteousness because I go to the Father. Why is Jesus going to the Father? He's already told us to prepare a place for us. Not heavenly dwellings, but rather to prepare the fullness of the consummation of the kingdom of God. The ultimate marriage of heaven and earth, where God's will is done on earth as in heaven. The Spirit will convict us of righteousness, where our world would be shot through with the beauty, justice, love, and peace of God. Revealing righteousness. The reality that we are called to live in anticipation of in all we do and say, and pray. The Spirit will convict us of sin, of righteousness, and verse 11, judgment. Now, very often we hear that word judgment as pointing to an entirely negative reality. God is coming to judge, and so watch out, turn, repent. Orvin and I, on Sunday afternoons, have been facilitating a course based on N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. And one of the main biblical realities Wright has been inviting us to see is that the promise of judgment is incredibly good news. I remember rightly, Wright uses the example of a widow who's being disadvantaged by a greedy landlord. The promise of a judge coming to right all the wrongs is incredibly good news for that widow. We live in an incredibly complex world in which every single one of us, to varying degrees, is on the one hand a perpetrator of the brokenness and injustices of the world, and on the other hand is a victim of the brokenness and the injustices of our world. And so the coming of judgment should, on the one hand, bring us to sober reflection on the ways that we contribute to the brokenness of the world, and on the other hand, should fill us with incredible delight and anticipation that the judge is coming to right all wrongs. 
How do we know this to be true? Well, Jesus tells us. The Spirit will convict us concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Here Jesus points us to the cross where the forces of sin, death, and hell unleash their fury upon Jesus. The enemy, the ruler of the world, the Satan, the deceiver who bears the face of Pilate, Roman soldiers, religious leaders, the betrayer Judas, wield their weapons. The weapons of violence, perverted justice, and abusive power. They seek to wipe from the face of the earth the world's true ruler, the Son of God. But three days later, he rises again, declaring that sin and death and hell will not have the last word. They've been judged and are waiting their final destruction. His resurrection then is the beginning of a new creation, a new way of ordering human society in right reference to its creator, his love, his justice, his grace, where violence, perverted justice, and abuse of power will have no place. The Spirit convicts us of this good news of judgment. But how? How will the Spirit do that work of conviction? Well, our final verses point the way. Verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will speak what he hears. He'll take my words and declare them to you. He'll declare the things that are to come. And from what... This point in the gospel, what is to come? Well, namely, the Spirit is to reveal the truth, the power, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, certainly, this points us to the centrality of the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Apostles' teaching. When we step away from the Scriptures, we step away from the central piece of what the Spirit does in our hearts and lives, and that is to press Jesus' words down into our hearts. How? Verse 14, the Spirit will glorify me, says Jesus. Now that word glory means weight, importance, significance. The Spirit brings about this conviction, this reordering of life and right reference to Jesus by pressing the truth of Jesus down, the truth of the gospel down, so that it is the most weighty, the most significant, the most important reality in our lives. I have been getting my exercise these days by going for daily walks, listening to books and sermons. One of the sermons that I listened to this week was showing how Paul, in calling his communities to live in anticipation of this new creation, was leaning into this very work of the Spirit. That is to glorify Jesus, to make him the most weighty, important, significant reality in our lives. As an example, consider Galatians 2 where Paul is confronting the racism of Peter. And he doesn't confront his racism with a rule, don't be a racist. He confronts Peter's racism by inviting him to behold Jesus. Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. In light of the reality that you are saved by the sheer grace of Jesus, there can be no place in your heart for any expression of superiority. 
Peter, behold Jesus. In Corinthians, Paul is calling upon his community to give generously to the Jerusalem church that have been ravaged by famine. And he doesn't do that by laying down a rule. You've got to tithe. You've got to give to the poor. No, he points to Jesus. Behold him. How he was rich yet became poor for your sake. How he was life itself yet died your death on a cross. Behold Jesus. In Ephesians, where Paul is inviting those who are married to live a life of mutual submission, of love and respect, he doesn't let, they lay down rules and guidelines and principles. He invites them to behold Jesus. Look at his love for you. This conviction, this reordering of life so that we are no longer cosmos, has brought about as the Spirit glorifies Jesus making his words, his love, his grace, the most weighty, important, significant reality in our lives. Our guilt washed away when we behold the glory of his forgiveness. Our love of others animated when we behold the glory of his love for us. Our burning desire for vengeance cooled when we behold the glory of his justice on the cross. Our pride buried when we behold the glory of his humility that he became a servant for our sake. Our missional apathy crushed when we behold the glory of his incarnation that he has become human to save, to rescue. It is to your advantage that I go away, says Jesus. We are better off now than they were in that moment. Why? Because he has sent us his spirit. The spirit who will convict us of sin, exposing the areas of life that are not ordered in reference to Jesus. Who will convict us of righteousness, revealing the glorious future that Jesus is preparing for us that is the marriage of heaven and earth. Who will convict us of judgment. That Jesus' death and resurrection signs the death warrant of sin, death, hell, and injustice. A convicting work as the Spirit glorifies Jesus, making him, his words, his love, his grace, the most weighty, significant, important thing in our lives. That we might live in anticipation of that future in all we do and say and pray. So may we more and more open up our hearts to receive the fullness of the Spirit's work. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Create new life in us. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.